Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full-body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. Before we roll the audio on this PFT Live podcast, we want you to know that Mike Florio does an afternoon podcast. Why? To catch all the late-breaking news and developing stories in the NFL, of course. So you got to subscribe to PFT PM as well. Go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Art19, or Google Play. Search PFT PM and subscribe. Boom. Done. Thanks for the support. Now, stats. Another hour of the PFT Live podcast. Monday edition of Pro Football Talk Live heading to the Scouting Combine later today for Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday shows. Four hours live on NBCSN each of the next three days. We've got the one-hour radio broadcast. There was one day last year when someone overslept and missed the first segment of the show. We'll try not to do that again. Should be an interesting week. The way that the NFL has adjusted the schedule to accommodate shifting the underwear Olympics into prime time to maximize the ratings and in turn the revenue that can be generated from the scouting combine, it really changes the schedule. Used to be that the coaches and GMs had their press conferences over a couple of days, which gave us ample opportunity to snag as many of them as we could. Now it's going to be tomorrow, all of them, most of them, some are there Wednesday, but not like it used to be. Most of them are there on Tuesday. And after we go off air at 11 a.m. Eastern, it's going to be get this guy, get that guy, get this guy, get that guy. Now, the positive aspect of the change, if there is one, is that it's going to be easier to grab players. Players are going to be talking more during the week instead of clustered toward the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, when we're not on air, so we don't hang around to try to interview the guys. Now, the practical problem is, at this stage of the game, a lot of these guys, for most people, the reaction is going to be, well, who the hell are they? It's more of a niche crowd. It's the draftnik crowd. It's the folks who are part of the obsession for two months out of the year over these names and positions and 
what they do at the combine and then they go into the vat of all players after the draft and we forget about for for the most part all of them until they actually prove that they can compete among the the guys currently in the nfl it's just the way it works every year it's just strange disconnect the draft industrial complex is a strange strange thing that that changes and shifts and morphs after the draft and we start focusing on all players who are in the league not just the 250 new ones watch the wilder fury fight on saturday night and there's always a shot of nostalgia for me when it comes to boxing my dad loved boxing he used to take me to boxing matches that were held from time to time in my hometown golden gloves and whatnot amateur fights rarely was there anyone professional that was fighting although it happened it was a big deal well it's professional like what's the difference it's two guys beating the crap out of each other and they're all not very good it was pretty good on saturday night and one thing i noticed you know the undercard is just like when is it going to end and the first couple of fights nobody's in the arena and it really does underscore that dynamic of when you see something on tv with seats that are empty like a lot of seats that are empty you ask yourself why am i watching this if the people who have the tickets to the event don't bother to show up for this or not even buy the tickets although in the case of the fight saturday night clearly they bought the tickets they just didn't show up for the early fights like why the hell am i watching it but there, there was an intensity that was dramatically more significant for the main event than for the other fights the other fights were just like any boxing matches you would trip over flipping around looking to see what's on tv the, the main event it was intense from the get-go and i personally think and i'm no boxing expert i remember when i was a kid i'd get frustrated i never knew how to rate who won around like how many punches actually land like it's all happening so fast you're just waiting i think most fans are in this mindset we're just waiting for the knockdown waiting for the big punch and for me wilder took the big punch in round one it was a jab that made him realize this fight's going to be different than any fight he's ever been in because he was 43 and 0 with 42 knockouts or 42 and 0 with 41 knockouts and the draw with fury from the last time but he got rocked by that jab and that that gave him a different demeanor and then when he got his eardrum busted he was never the same after that he was wobbly i can't believe he made it to round seven and the ref stopped the fight just as the towel was being thrown in and and it shouldn't have lasted as long as it did i think the ref kept giving him a chance and his corner kept giving him a chance to snap out of it and he just never snapped out of it in part because fury was i mean 6'9 273 good god so i'm waiting for fury wilder three and it's weird too we've been watching ufc from time to time when you go back to boxing like when a guy gets knocked down you're thinking well jump on top of him in boxing like well wait you can't that's that's not how it works but you're so used to that and oh they're wearing shoes all right on to football CBA discussions are going to resume this week in Indianapolis. Friday was a strange day, kind of. See, I think what's going on is this. The executive committee of the NFLPA worked out a deal with the league, and they worked out a deal. That's one of the things where I think the NFL has failed from a PR standpoint. And the NFL, I think, decided, and, and maybe it tells me a little bit about the psychology of this deal. I think the NFL knows it's a pretty good deal. And they're in pretty good shape if they can get this thing locked in now that they've managed to convince the union of the merits of taking this deal now so then they can pivot to the far bigger prize 
the TV contracts that can be negotiated with the promise of labor peace through the end of the decade. But by just kind of stepping back and letting this play out, too many people didn't realize the reality. And the reality is there's a deal. There's a deal that's been negotiated by the NFL and the NFLPA, and it's up to the two sides to sell it to their clients. Thursday of last week, I think it was more ceremonial than anything else. The NFL accepted the deal and also made it clear that if the league uh, and the union don't reach an agreement on this proposal, they're done talking until next year. That could be bluster, or maybe it isn't. See, I think what ultimately happened is the NFLPA looked at this and they asked themselves, wait a minute, why the hell are we doing this now? Like, why did we rush into this? They're having buyer's remorse before they have actually bought it. It's kind of like when you are looking at a house and you've made the offer and the offer has been accepted and you've written the check for $2,000 or whatever it is for the earnest money. And you're in that period of time between signing the contract, although I know no contract has been signed here, but this is the best analogy I could pull out of my butt. In that window in between, because it's really not done until you have the closing, between signing the initial paperwork and the closing, all the stuff that needs to get done. And I've been through this experience on the side of the seller of a house. When we tried to sell and ultimately did to a different couple, our house before we moved into the house that we're in now six years ago, we had a couple that between signing the paperwork and closing the deal decided this isn't going to work for us. Now, the NFLPA is looking at this and saying this isn't going to work for us. What are our options? Because it's not like there's another house out there. They're still buying this house. The question is, when are they going to buy it and what are they going to pay or how much are they going to get paid for it? So what the NFLPA wants to do is go back to the bargaining table and see what happens. I think that's what happened on Friday because it was bizarre to see that the executive committee, which negotiated the deal, voted against the deal six to five. That is a bad, bad look on the surface. It's like, guys, you negotiated this deal. What are you doing voting it down? And I think at the core, there's a belief that they can go back to the table and try to get more. And the way Lorenzo Alexander explained it on Sirius XM NFL radio yesterday, and he's a member of the executive committee, but he's also retiring, so he's less concerned about getting in trouble for saying something he shouldn't say. He basically painted it that way. And he also, without coming out and saying it, said, you know, a lot of us, we're focused on football while these negotiations continued, which means he's kind of throwing Demora Smith, the NFL PA executive director, under the bus a little bit. That's one of the things that's been lost in all of this. If this deal ultimately doesn't go through, it is an extreme vote of no confidence in the guy who was ultimately in charge of the negotiation, the guy who decided this was a good deal and has embarked on the process of selling it to the players. If he can't sell it to the players, I mean, this door swings both ways. If D. Smith thinks this is a good deal and he can't sell it to the players, number one, why does he? Why do they want him to continue in that job? And number two, why does he want to continue? This is the equivalent of the lawyer who has a client who won't take the lawyer's advice. 
at some point the lawyer says to the client, I'm out. Now, it's a different situation here because the lawyer then moves on to other clients. In this case, the lawyer has one client. He's Tom Hagen, and he's getting more than $3 million a year for the one client. So you're not going to lightly walk away from that relationship. But that's really kind of the, once you scratch the surface and understand where this is going, potential outcome, logical outcome. Union finds new executive director or executive director finds a new job on his own. The other reality is that at the core, there may be an understanding that they will take this deal, that they're ultimately going to put the deal to a vote of the rank and file. See, that was one of the strange things that came out on Friday because I was led to believe the executive committee has to approve it then it goes to the board of player reps, and if at least two-thirds of them approve it, it goes to the players for a full vote. And the player vote, 50% plus one of 1,900 dues-paying members. The hard part was, I thought, the board of player reps. I assumed the executive committee would be behind a deal that it negotiated. The board of player reps selling them two-thirds was going to be the challenge. Well, as it turns out, executive committee votes it down. Board of player reps don't even hold their vote. And the union made it clear, and I looked at the Constitution, this is the way it's written, the full rank and file still vote on the proposal that's been negotiated by the executive committee. The full rank and file will still vote. And that prompted, I'm told, at least one member of the Board of Player Representatives, a very prominent player in the NFL whose helmet is yellow and other colors are green, to say during the conference call on Friday, why the hell are you even bringing it to us? That's not a verbatim quote, but that was the gist of it, I'm told. That Aaron Rodgers piped up and said, why, why are you even taking a vote of the board of player reps if what we say doesn't matter? Now, the thinking is whether or not the board of player reps recommends the CBA will have weight with the players. But you know who's only going to have weight with the players? And this is something that's going to be a rude awakening for the NFLPA leadership because they've been antagonizing agents for the past few years. The agents are going to have a lot of say over whether this deal goes through because most of these guys, as one agent told me over the weekend, they're sitting around playing Xbox. They're kids. 22, 23, 24 years old. The bulk of the union is guys on the right side of 25 who are playing Xbox and in jurisdictions where it's legal or otherwise, smoking weed and eating Doritos and just trying to recover from the football season they just went through. And they're going to do what their agents tell them to do. So I don't know what's going to happen this week. And the next decision point is this. When the NFLPA sits down with the league on Tuesday, I think, is when they're going to do it. And I'm surprised the league would even agree to meet. But see, they still want to get this deal done. What's the league going to say when the NFLPA says we want more. Is the league holding back some stuff that they can give them to make that feel like it was a success? Like, is this part of the master plan? Here's our offer. Here's what we negotiated. And we know we can do more. Like, have they read this, this dynamic to understand what came next? And do they have already budgeted movement that they plan to make, or are they going to say the deal's a deal?
The deal's the deal. That's the question that comes up next. What does the NFL say? But chances are this. I've been covering this sport for 20 years. The NFL has a plan. And the plan is probably working. And ultimately, I think it's going to take a little effort. But I think in the end, the deal's going to get done. And I haven't even gotten into concepts of antitrust and options that the players have. We talked about that last week. I'm not going to get into that again today. And I've got stories written about it. You know, maybe the owners won't be as intent on shutting down a full season this time. Maybe there's more leverage for the players. you got a lot of older owners. Is Jerry Jones going to want to give up a full season? A full opportunity to get a Super Bowl? I don't think so. But let's let's put a pin in that. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that if this thing goes sideways tomorrow. The key is what happens in Indy. When we return, something that happened in Indy yesterday, Jim Irsay had a press conference aimed at saving the combine, but he talked about a few other things. We'll tell you what he said next right here on PFC Live. 22 minutes after the hour on this Monday edition of Pro Football Talk Live. Jim Irsay. Colts owner on Sunday met with the media. The notice came out of the blue on Saturday that he's going to meet with the media on Sunday. It's like, why is he going to do that? The topics were the Colts, the scouting combine, and philanthropy. Well, with Jim Irsay, the topics are whatever comes out of his mouth in response to a question. And this isn't a criticism. This is reality. There are certain people who will just go and go and go and go and go. Jim, what color is the sky? Well, you know, uh, it depends on what kind of a day it is. Some days uh, there isn't a cloud in the sky and it's a really rich shade of blue. But other days, you know, it gets a different, uh, you you get the point. He just rambles. And as part of his rambling, he, and he he was smart, he was careful. He wouldn't talk about the status of the CBA. I thought he may stray in that direction. And he also wouldn't talk about specific players when asked about the future of the quarterback position. I can't talk about any specific player, Ursay said. I will say that all options are open, all options are on the table. I've never quite been in a year where this was so unusual, if you will. And look, that's an obvious message to send. It's not like he's putting up smoke signals for Philip Rivers. All that stuff's happening behind the scenes anyway, especially this week. Tampering Central. In Indianapolis. I think the real objective of what Ursay was doing yesterday was trying to make some sort of a desperate plea to keep the scouting combine in Indianapolis. Look, Jim, it's leaving. And I thought it was hilarious, as did many others, that Ursay based his argument that the scouting combine should stay in Indianapolis because traditions should not be altered. You know, like the great tradition that was the Baltimore Colts. They should never be altered. And they should definitely not be altered by having all of their belongings packed into a Mayflower moving van and driven away in the middle of the night. I mean, if the league has any sense of poetry, the best way to announce that the Combine is leaving for L.A. would be to pick the same day of the year that the Colts left in the middle of the night for Indianapolis and issue a press release at the same time the reports came out that the Colts were 
stealthily moving out of Baltimore. That would be beautiful. And I remember being at the Combine last year and hearing from some extremely influential people, people far more influential than Jim Irsay. And that's a low bar. League-wide, that's a low bar. Look, he owns a team. Fine. 32 people own teams. Within that hierarchy, there are people who have influence and there are people who just own teams. People with influence believe that it's just a matter of time. Oh, let me rephrase that. People with influence want it to just be a matter of time, and they have the influence to make it happen. L.A. is going to be the site of the combine at some point. And I think once it moves to L.A., I'll probably quit going. Because I, it's all, look, they're already making it all in deference to the reality show about nothing that's going to be on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night via the Underwear Olympics. already making it harder and harder to, to properly cover it. I think when they move it to L.A., uh, it ain't happening for me. And I don't know when it's going to L.A., but I think it's going to go there sooner than we realize. And one other thing that Jim Irsay did that just was intriguing, talking about the value of quarterbacks, he just blurted out that in 2012 they were going to take Russell Wilson in the fourth round. Now, he went near the midway point of round three, so it's all academic. But wouldn't that have been something? Andrew Luck and Russell Wilson on the same death chart? Hey, not, not, there was no way Russell Wilson was beating out Andrew Luck, but I don't think that talent could have been held down. I think they would have eventually been trading him after a year or two to who knows who. Uh, but Russell Wilson was going to have his career one way or the other. But it could have started in Indianapolis. When we return, what are they going to do with the pass interference replay review rule? We'll be right back. One of the other things happening this week at the Scouting Combine, I mean, a lot of things go on. It's the NFL's biggest annual convention. All the agents are there. They have their annual meeting, and agents are involved in these CBA talks. There'll be meetings about that. There'll be meetings between agents and teams about free agents who are eventually going to hit the market or some who aren't and may be available via tag and trade. And... There will be meetings and already have been meetings of the competition committee and various subcommittees, and they get input from coaches and players, etc., as they commence the month-long process of setting the table for owners at the league meetings in late March to decide on potential rule changes for the coming season. And front and center is the rule change and sometimes the nfl gets a little persnickety about this it really wasn't a rule change it was a process change the rule for pass interference didn't change they just added an enhancement for replay review for pass interference calls and non-calls offensive and defensive that was added last year as the reaction to the Rams saints nfc championship game debacle and a year ago at this time rich mckay the competition committee chairman's attitude was we don't need to do anything it was a once in every 100 years event, and by the time something like this ever happens again, we'll all be dead and gone, which is a happy thought on a Monday morning. What ended up happening was there was a revolt from the teams, from the coaches, from the executives at the league meetings in Arizona last year that compelled the competition committee to work with the owners and come up with what ultimately was used last year on a one-year basis only trial basis 
See, once a rule is permanent, it takes 24 votes to kill it. If it's a trial basis, it takes 24 votes to keep it until they vote by at least 24 in favor of making it a permanent rule change. And at that point, it's very hard to get rid of it. So one-year basis, replay review for pass interference calls and non-calls. And now they have to decide what to do. And Mark Maskey had a report last night after speaking with Rich McKay following a competition committee meeting where McKay is being very non-committal. It's too early to say whether it will or should be kept in place, replay review for pass interference. And he acknowledged some of the issues, but he said some things that make me think his position ultimately is going to be, let's just keep it for another year. I won't be surprised if they keep it for another year. I really won't be. And I think the reason why they would keep it for another year is they want to see if the implementation and execution improve sufficiently from last year to this year, especially if, and I have heard nothing in this regard, I know there are people who want to bring back Dean Blandino, people in positions of influence within ownership want Blandino to come back. That doesn't mean they want to run our river on out the door. He's got value in the organization somewhere, but as the person who makes the decisions in real time, the tough decisions, the easy ones, hey, we've got a foot down, didn't get a foot down, that's easy. The tougher decisions are the ones that seem to vex our river on the most. I could see them doing replay review for pass interference, calls and non-calls for one more year with Dean Blandino or someone else but ideally Blandino, before they make a final decision about replay review. Because I don't think you can just declare the replay review for pass interference calls and non-calls a failure, which is what you're doing if you don't keep it, and then bring it back a year or two from now when you feel better about who your VP of officiating is, who's making those decisions. And Al Riveron is a nice person, You know, one of the challenges for this job, and really any job where you are covering, where you are engaging in some semblance of journalism, you have to call it like you see it. And I don't think Al Riveron's suited for the specific aspect of his job that entails interpreting, deciding, communicating these critical decisions that get made during football games. And I've suggested in the past, because I think one of the reasons Blandino left, one, they don't value the position the way they should. He said that himself on the PFTPM podcast. Two, and this goes along with the first reason, they don't value the job the way they should because they got the guy doing too much. They need somebody who is the person in charge of replay review and also the public face and voice of officiating for the NFL. Because during football season, all due respect to the commissioner, during football season, that's the most important job they have. And Al Riveron is not suited for it. Now, he may be suited to be the supervisor of officials. He's a former official. There was always resentment of Blandino because he never wore black and white stripes, as if that matters. You could argue that that makes him more suited because, look, it, it's a very cliquish high school 
existence. They obsess over their grades, like obsessing over how many likes they got on an Instagram photo. And at some point, that micro-focus on these objective indicators of value, they cause them to lose sight of what's really important, which is getting the calls right all the time. So, look, let Riveron be in charge of the officials and have him report to some higher-level executive. Let Blandino be in charge of replay review and being the face and the voice of the officiating decisions made and not made during games. and Because you can have, and I think you need to have, a public and private component to this. Privately, they assign the grades. They work with the officials. You know, nobody ever gets fired from being an official. They're very discreet about how they manage that workforce. They don't want to embarrass these guys publicly. Let, let Al Riveron be the VP of officiating and be in charge of the officials. And then let Dean Blandino be the VP of something better than what I can come up with in the moment. That would make for a clunky business card. VP of replay review. It's a combination of an officiating job and a PR job. But I don't know that you want to call it a PR job because you want it to be PR without it obviously being PR. But I think that may be what they need to do for this year. This isn't a problem you solve in one year. You don't have the ultimate solution in one year. Replay review didn't work last year, not because of the procedure, but because of the person who was responsible for it. Now, the best case scenario, the right thing to do, I think, is sky judge. Coaches want it, but the coaches aren't the ones who have to pay for it. It's very easy to want something if you don't have to pay for it. The owners don't want it because they don't want to pay for it. And I've argued, look, folks, you're going to make billions more eventually from legalized gambling. And having Sky Judge is one of the ways that you protect yourself against scandals that would arise from not the coach of the team that lost lighting up the phone lines at 345 Park Avenue, but people losing millions of dollars because of a bad decision. And you got the Democratic senator from the state of Wisconsin calling you up on the phone. And it could be the Republican. This isn't a political thing. I'm just trying to paint the picture. On line one is a powerful political figure who is ready to convene a hearing of a House or Senate committee because there's a concern that incompetence and corruption have a fine line. And we're not sure at this point which side of it the NFL is on. You don't want that. It's still hard to convince owners to spend money that they don't have to spend. They didn't get that rich by spending money they didn't have to spend. There's certain money you have to spend to make money. You got to spend money to make money. But that doesn't mean waste money. And that's where I think they are with Sky Judge. Why do we need Sky Judge? Why do we need it? Why do we need it? We don't need it. Now, Peter's got an idea, and he's going to be joining me in about 15 minutes for a solution. My, mine, my, I've got a very simple slow chart. Step one, if you can get Blandino back, keep replay review for pass interference for another year. Step two, if you can't get Blandino back, then Sky Judge. Step three, if you're too, too cheap for Sky Judge, and that's ultimately what it comes down to, 
I, I think that, and, and see, this gets back to the quality of the person who's running the show from 345 Park Avenue. Because what happened in the Rams-Saints game was avoidable. If Al Riveron had simply gotten on the horn, spoken in real time through the ultra-high-speed fiber line to the referee in charge of that game, and said, drop a flag, drop a flag, drop a flag. Huh? What? Drop a flag. Pass interference. 20. Defense. Pass interference. Do it. Do it. Do it. Violation of the protocol. Who cares? I've said this before. Let me go ahead and say it again. If Al Riveron had instructed the referee of the Rams-Saints NFC Championship game to drop a flag after Nikel Roby Coleman blew up Tommy Lee Lewis late in the fourth quarter and the pass interference that had been missed on the field had been called. Let's assume that Riveron did it and let's assume that the NFL eventually admitted that Riveron did it. The, the, the easy solution is never admit it. Well, oh, no, that didn't happen. They've done that before. When it's obvious when you're watching the game, they're hearing from the league office and they're doing something that they're not supposed to be doing with the input of the league office. But the, the, the technology is in place. Why not use it to fix things? I've got a very basic approach. If you want to use that to fix something that's clearly wrong, I don't care. Do it. If they had done that January of 2019, and if the Saints had won the game and the truth came out that Al Riveron used that pipeline to call pass interference when the officials had missed it and otherwise would have proceeded with the game, do you think that Rams fans would have been up in arms about that? It was clearly pass interference. They, they got away with one. What can you say? Oh, well, how dare they violate the protocol set forth in approved rule 2.26 specifying that there shall be no communication by the league office to the referees in situations involving the application and the interpretation of rules in real time. Baloney! Baloney! They just said, well, all right, we almost got away with it. And it would have been the right outcome. That's what they need to do. But the, the, And I know the problem with that is you start exercising that power, where do you draw the line? Well, you know what? You draw the line where there's one game on, it's a single elimination game, and millions are watching it, and you know it when you see it, and you worry about it, you know, when it happens in week six in the cluster of 1 p.m. Eastern time games, and no one fixes it then. It's not nearly as big of a deal. That's the ultimate, I think, If if they're not if if they're not going to keep replay review, and if they're not going to pay for Sky Judge, then I think the secret, off the books solution. And you say, hey, you know what? We're going to trust our officials to get these calls right in the future. You have the backup. You have the emergency option where our river on or whoever's in that job is ready to say, drop the flag. All right. When we return, I got some thoughts. I got four thoughts for now on how to improve the XFL. And I don't dislike the XFL, folks. When I say that there aren't many people to game, and there aren't many people to game, I'm stating facts. I got four observations, four opinions, on how to make the XFL more compelling after watching it. And I have watched it for the last three weeks. More PFT Live right after this. 
53 minutes after the hour, it is Pro Football Talk Live. And, yeah, hey, look, I get this argument all the time from people. Your website is Pro Football Talk. The XFL is Pro Football. You should talk about it. Well, folks, the reason it's called Pro Football Talk isn't about having flexibility to cover other forms of pro football. How many CFL stories have you ever seen on the website? It's because the NFL can't squat on my head and say, you must change the name of your website. If you use NFL, you run the risk of getting yourself in the position of receiving a cease and desist letter from Jeff Pash or someone else in a position of legal authority with the NFL. So that's why it's called Pro Football Talk. We, we weren't anticipating in November of 2001 when we launched the site, the eventual return of the XFL. But the XFL is back. 19 years after it first was on the scene for a year. And I've got some ideas. And, and this isn't going to revolutionize it. This isn't going to save it. I've just got some ideas after watching it for the first few weeks. And I've watched it every week. It's, now, it's not appointment viewing, but when I'm working on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon and otherwise watching whatever, whatever's on Netflix, uh, they, they got the Disney Plus app on the TV that I use for my my streaming. Now I'm streaming only. Cords cut, baby. Cords cut. You can't say, okay, boomer to me about that. You can about other things, but not that. I've cut the cord, baby. But uh, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, whatever time they get started, I flip it over and I watch it. And at times I enjoy it. Here's a way to enjoy it more. I talked about this earlier as it related to the first few fights of the Fury Wilder card on Saturday night. And I previously made the point, play in smaller stadiums. So when you have 30,000, it's full. Like they had 30,000 in St. Louis yesterday. But the entire upper deck at what used to be called the Edward Jones Dome was empty. You see those shots and it just, it doesn't look right. So if you're going to play in the big stadiums, and I like the idea of staying in the big stadiums because maybe at some point they can fill them up, put tarps up like they do in Oakland, or did in Oakland, like they've done in the past in Jacksonville. I went to an arena football league game in Pittsburgh five or six years ago. The LA Kiss were taking on the Pittsburgh something, pride, power, something with a P. And the configuration of they change the name of that place every two or three years, whether it's PPG Paints Arena, Console Energy, whatever. They they put up like curtains so you can't see that the upper deck's empty. Right? They create this more intimate feeling in the stadium. Now I understand that it's easier to do that in a 20,000 seat arena than in a 70,000 seat stadium, but but do that. Do something like come up with something so it feels like the place is full. Either play in a smaller stadium or, or tarp it up, baby, for XFL season. That, that, that's a superficial fix. I have an idea for the three-point conversion. Right now, you, you choose. You put the ball at the two-yard line. If you put it into the end zone, you get one. You put it at the five. If you score from there, you get two. You put it at the ten. If you score from there, you get three. So you have to declare ahead of time what you're going for, one, two, or three. My idea is very simple. Put the ball at the fifteen. Every time. If you get to the 10, you get one. If you get to the five, you get two. If you push it all the way in, you get three. And before you dismiss it, because you're going to say, oh, we're just going to dismiss it because we want to dismiss things. Before you dismiss it, think about it. Think about the uncertainty it adds, not just because when under the current system, you're declaring what you're going for. One, two, or three. 
You're taking the snap at the 15. Defense doesn't know what you're going for. Defense doesn't know whether to defend the 10, the 5, or the end zone. You better read the play. You better figure it out. You better guess right. You better get to the ball. He catches the ball at the 9. You better tackle him before the 5. And you better definitely tackle him before he gets to the end zone. It's going to, because there's too many of these 6 6 scores, 12 6. One of the things we're used to about football is multiples of seven. And, and it's a subtle point, but it's a real point. When you see that the score is 12 to six, it doesn't feel right. I, so this is a way to, 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 to get to seven easier. Just gain five yards on that play, you're getting to seven. And you gain 10 yards, you're getting to eight. You push it all the way and you're getting to nine. That, I'm telling you, that is a winning idea. Whether you agree with me or not, I don't care if you agree with me. I'm allowed to declare it a winner, and I do. That's a winning idea. XFL, adopt that now, or at least for next season, if you have a next season. We have a next hour, and an hour after that, Peter King is locked and loaded and ready to go. Plenty to discuss. Combine week, Monday edition, Pro Football Talk Live. More coming at you right after this. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.